Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. Residents of Moore County, North Carolina, received a rude awakening late last year regarding the fragility of the national electric grid when an attack by domestic terrorists on an electric substation left thousands in the cold and dark for several days. Now add to this challenge the urgent climate emergency-driven imperative for a rapid transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, and it's clear there's no time at all to waste in upgrading the way our nation produces and delivers electricity. Recently, in order to get a better handle on where things stand, the size of the task, the work that's being done, and the resistance in some corners, I caught up with one of the country's most knowledgeable journalists on the subject, the Illinois-based energy policy reporter for the state's newsroom network, Robert Zulo. Well, Robert Zullo, welcome to News and Views. Thanks so much for being with us. Hello, thanks for having me. So there's so much I want to ask you about this fast-moving realm of, of energy and energy policy, but I do want to ask about a couple of recent stories you've written for us at NC Policy Watch. And the first concerns an issue that really hit North Carolina hard uh, recently. That's the uh, substation attack that took place in Moore County, North Carolina, in which we had vandals or extremists or domestic terrorists, depending on your definition, attack a, a local substation and put people in the blackout situation for several days. I gather that the feds are examining this situation. There was a hearing recently. What Tell us about sort of the status of this issue and the scope and scale of the potential problem. After the attacks in uh, Moore County and uh, similar incidents across the country, you know, FERC and the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which is the entity that's in charge of setting and enforcing uh, reliability standards for the broader, what they call the bulk power system, initiated a review, you know, to see what should be done to try to protect some of these facilities from these kind of attacks. The way the, you know, the regulatory regime is set up right now, standards really only exist for facilities that um, if they were damaged or knocked out would cause a bigger impact to the broader electric system. So the way that, you know, one of the speakers at the, the FERC meeting I covered yesterday put it was, you know, we're focused on issues that affect millions of power customers, not thousands. Hmm. And so what they're looking at right now is whether that should change uh, and how much it might cost. Obviously, there, I think the stat I heard in the meeting yesterday, there was more than 50,000 of these substations <laughs> across the country. And they're spread out everywhere, you know, from in cities, in towns, to in the middle of nowhere, to very rural areas. Right. And, you know, one of the concerns is we can't protect all of these. It would be prohibitively expensive. How should we develop kind of a hierarchy of which ones are the most important? I think a lot of people, myself included, were surprised to find out that, you know, that there are physical security standards for mm-hmm. these types of facilities, but they're really only the ones that, you know, would affect, would have huge effects on the grid if they were knocked out. So not these, you know, even though obviously 30 or 40,000 people losing power in Moore County was, was a big deal, you know, there right now there aren't standards, there aren't you know, physical security requirements for facilities like that. We have evidence that there's been a, a rather sobering uptick in the reports of these, uh, if not executed plans and actual attacks, at least planning and, and conspiracies around potentially doing this, apparently mostly on far right groups. Is is that accurate? Yeah, this came up in the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission meeting yesterday. You know, the new commissioner, Willie Phillips, the reference to the report from um, the program on extremism at George Washington University, that there's a common thread here of neo-Nazi, white supremacist groups circulating information on how to knock out substations. Mostly these are shooting attacks, so literally just shooting bullets at at substations. There has been a documented rise uh, in these incidents. You know, the vast majority of them, in fact, do not cause any broader effects or, you know, don't 
result in power outages. But, but when they do, obviously, they're very disruptive. And so yeah. the debate is, you know, what's the cost benefit, you know, to trying to better protect some of these facilities? You know, what, if any, should be a minimum you know, requirement like fencing or cameras? You know, one thing that came up in the meeting yesterday was uh, Commissioner Mark Christie, who's a former Virginia utility regulator, saying, you know, we can't harden all these facilities. You can't put up like a ballistic protection against every <laughs> substation in the country. It would just be prohibitively expensive. So the final report with recommendations is going to be due in April and we'll see, you know, what comes out of that. And presumably the duty for dealing with this is dispersed. Is it, I mean, I guess the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission could come, ha, will have this report and perhaps recommendations, but is it up to the individual states or investor-owned utilities? Who has the duty for making the decision when it comes to how far we go? Well, FERC and NERC are in charge of electric transmission facilities, which substations are, uh, okay. you know, are classified as. So if they decided they wanted to set a, a rule, kind of a baseline for security, they could do that, and it would apply to every one of these facilities in the country. However, there's nothing that would prevent a given state from saying, you know, we're going to set our own standards for these kinds of facilities within our borders. And, you know, that was one thing that was floated in the meeting is that, you know, state utility commissions should work with their utilities. Commissioner Christie put it this way, you know, develop a hierarchy. You know, what are the most crucial facilities? How many customers, you know, would be affected by the loss of one of these? And then you can kind of triage them in that way. So it ultimately falls on the FERC and NERC, but there's nothing that would prevent states from kind of looking at this on their own. You know, one thing that came up in the meeting yesterday, you know, some states are, are have increasing, you know, criminal penalties for attacks on mm -hmm. these kind of facilities, you know, going from a misdemeanor to a felony. And, uh, you know, that's one avenue, too, that that was discussed at the meeting. That has been proposed here, yeah, in our North Carolina General Assembly this session. We're talking with Robert Zula, who's the national energy reporter for State's Newsroom. We've been talking about the attacks on electric substations, but I want to shift now to another topic on which uh, Bob is a prolific reporter, and that's the transition to renewable energy. We know that this is something that's urgent in light of the global climate emergency. It's been going on in a lot of places and indeed seems to be picking up speed. We've had, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has helped to expedite investments in this realm recently and going forward. But as you reported, there's also been some resistance in a lot of places and actual bans on wind and solar. What's your take on the overall situation here? Are we still moving forward? Has it gotten stuck in neutral as a result of this resistance or is it more spotty? I would say spotty is the best way to, to describe it. It's something that people in the renewable energy industry that I talk to are increasingly worried about. Uh, the difficulty in siting projects. You know, this isn't just a renewable energy phenomenon. If you think about any kind of infrastructure building in this country, it's become very difficult to build lots of things. You know, uh, obviously, you know, North Carolina and Virginia were, you know, very uh, convulsed by these big pipeline project developments, the Atlantic Coast and the Mountain Valley pipelines. You know, those saw a lot of resistance, new highways, new bridges, before I was an energy reporter, I covered transportation for the Richmond Times-Dispatch and trying to get a new uh, Amtrak line through a, a town called Ashland, Virginia that celebrated its railroad history every year was unbelievably difficult. And they ultimately wound up not going with the third track idea. So it's a bigger phenomenon. But yes, as, as far as it deals specifically with renewable energy, I think that as you have these various incentives, including recently in the Inflation Reduction Act, that are kind of turbocharging the renewable energy business, it's becoming more of a common thing, particularly in um, suburban and rural communities where, for want of a better term, or maybe this is the best term, nimbyism is kind of just mm -hmm. a fact of life. Not in my backyard. 
Right. And, you know, I started my career at newspapers covering the very smallest zoning and planning issues. And those were always very contentious, uh, you know, in suburban communities. But coming from Virginia, you know, where I'd worked previously to the Midwest, I had never really seen a wind turbine up close, a land-based wind turbine. If you've never seen one, it's hard to, you know, overstate how huge they are and how much they really do transform the landscape. And yes, there is a whole bunch of you know, misinformation in every town where there or county where there's an organized resistance to wind and solar. These Facebook groups pop up that spout all kinds of dubious and false information about the health effects and, you know, kind of other detrimental impacts of wind development. But when you kind of peel all that away, people don't really want to look at it, the, the people that are opposed mm -hmm. to them. And, you know, it's mostly an aesthetic thing. And you can see, I mean, they're a big change. Some mm -hmm. of these things are, you know, 500, 600 feet tall. They are often clustered in arrays of dozens of turbines. They do change the landscape a lot. Maybe less so with solar power. I mean, that seems perhaps, obviously, it's usually closer to the ground, but also can take up a lot of land, I suppose. Yeah, solar solar takes up a lot of acreage. Um, and these developments can be really big. But generally, what you will see around solar is there'll often be a you know vegetative screen, you know, trees planted. Hmm. Uh, you know, in some counties, they they want to require berms to be built, you know, to uh, kind of shield them from view. You know, ultimately, the big picture across the United States is you have this push from the federal government, and many states and many utilities and many corporations have set these very aggressive decarbonization goals. But you're running into the land use conflicts at the very local level. Some places are are moving from trying to take away a little bit of local authority to regulate these projects, like in Illinois, where they mm -hmm. just passed a big state law to set statewide standards for wind and solar. And other states like Ohio have gone in the opposite direction, where they're taking things that were a state process and turning over that power to individual counties. We're talking with Robert Zilla, who's the national energy reporter for State's Newsroom. You can read all of his stories at ncpolicywatch.com. Bob, I guess I'll get you out of here on this, and that's to talk about the potential of solar and wind in North Carolina. Uh, some reports indicate we're doing pretty good, or at least we're pretty successful in, it, in installing a lot of solar power, and, and there is a, a growing indication, perhaps, that offshore wind will be a part of the energy future. Am I right there? Does that look like that's a big part of the future in North Carolina? Solar in North Carolina, uh, you rank fourth in the country for overall solar installed. You know, obviously there is, you know, in Virginia, uh, there is a big push uh, by Dominion Energy off the coast of Virginia Beach to create a giant wind development. And increasingly, states are working together on trying to develop supply chains, regulations, because there's a big potential. I know there's a, um, I think it's called Kitty Hawk Wind off the coast mm -hmm. of uh, the Outer Banks. You know, there's a lot of collaboration or there was when I left Virginia, there was, a, you know, a big focus on trying to get governors and states to work together on, uh, you know, developing the supply chains and kind of other logistics to create, you know, kind of getting this industry off the ground. But there's no real doubt, really, is there that we, I mean, is there another alternative? I mean, if, if you take it as a given, a scientific given that climate emergency is real, and we've got to reduce our emissions of carbon and methane. And some would argue, well, we've got to vastly expand nuclear power as well. But it doesn't seem that there's any real doubt amongst the vast majority of scientists that wind and solar have to be a big part of our energy going future going forward if we're going to avoid really catastrophic climate crisis. I think that's the consensus. The uh, electric power sector contributes roughly a quarter of U.S. carbon emissions. And there is a debate on 
you know, how much renewables can the grid accommodate given the, you know, kind of the intermittency of wind and solar, how mm -hmm. fast battery storage will develop to solve that challenge, what role you know, nuclear power, which is the only carbon-free baseload source of electric generation we have right now, will play. One of the stories I'm going to be doing this spring is on small modular reactors, which are kind of an emerging technology that allows you to kind of scale up or you know, have as much nuclear as you want um, in basically units that fit on the back of a flatbed mm. tractor trailer. Um, so you can kind of add megawatts as you want to kind of match the demands of the grid. So all of this is being sorted out right now, which makes it kind of an exciting time to, you know, cover energy. It's also, you know, very confusing, very complicated. I've been to a big industry conference last year, and there doesn't seem to be any debate amongst the power sector, you know, about decarbonization uh, as a goal. The questions tend to be, you know, how fast is too fast? How fast is reckless? Are we not going fast enough? It's mostly about the pace and the technologies. You have indeed picked an area to be a journalist in, in which you'll have plenty to write about in the years ahead. And we're so glad you're doing it for us at NC Policy Watch. Robert Zillow is the national energy reporter for State's Newsroom. Bob, keep up the great work, and we'll talk again later this year, perhaps. Yeah, thanks. Great to be with you. Well, that's it for this edition of News and Views. Remember, you can check us out online and subscribe for free to some of our state's best news coverage and political commentary at ncpolicywatch.com. You can also listen to all of our interviews and commentaries on Apple Podcasts. For producer Clayton Henkel, it's Rob Schofield. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to News and Views. A weekly look at state and policy issues is a production of North Carolina Policy Watch. Visit them online at ncpolicywatch.com.